This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. So, uh, as all things elections, we've got just 100 days to the U.S. election. This one is impossible not to watch. Literally impossible not to watch. Two very bad candidates, and we've got a circus like we have absolutely never seen before. You can't get away from it, even if you want to. So Donald Trump, of course, is a walking headline. Several, in fact, over the weekend. Uh, Here's what he announced. He believes, yes, the election is now going to be rigged. I'm afraid the election's going to be rigged. I have to be honest. Because I think my side was rigged. If I didn't win by massive landslides, I mean, think of what we won in New York and Indiana, California, 78%. That's with other people in in the race. Okay, that was just the latest headline over the weekend. He told uh, an interviewer that Russia will not enter Ukraine. That's already happened. Uh, He also said that the biggest and most relentless media firestorm, I I mean, his comments over the parents of that dead U.S. soldier, Captain Humayan Khan. I mean, he's not backing down from this. He is not backing down from this. So he's dug in his heels, as Trump tends to do, and said this is not about the Khan family. It's all about radical Islamic terror. And uh, so this weekend alone has been just something else for Trump. Just something else. I mean, he's been accused of being an agent for the Kremlin. He's anti-Muslim, a hater of all veterans. And, of course, I don't know if you saw the pictures in the New York Post of his naked wife, Melania, splashed all over the place. I think that will actually increase his votes. She looks great. Although I'm not sure, you know, why we're seeing that. But nonetheless, hey, if I look like that, my pictures would be everywhere. Right, Jake? Absolutely. <laughs> All over the Internet. All Alex. over. I'd put them up myself. Let's bring in Michael Diamond, who's a mudrucker uh, and, of course, a hater of all things Trump, uh, to, to talk a little bit about this. Hi, Michael. Hey, Alex. All right. So <laughs> I have to ask, did Trump go too far with his comments to the Khan family? And I say that. When they themselves are the one who kind, they they put themselves out there in the spotlight. So they they absolutely put themselves in the spotlight. But uh, so uh, there's a few things. One, let, let's unpack this from the beginning. Donald Trump defeated 16 challengers for the Republican nomination for president. That includes governors of some of the largest states like New York with George Pataki and Jeb Bush from the most important swing states and John Kasich, people who collectively have decades and decades and decades of elected experience and political experience. And uh, he, he managed to beat them. And now he's in a very competitive race with Hillary Clinton, who's in her second run for the White House and an experienced politician herself. And the fact of the matter, it, it's probably the most uh, fierce opponent that Donald Trump has faced so far is a Pakistani immigrant lawyer, Mr. Khan, who has done, I think, more damage to Donald Trump, self-inflicted on Trump's part, than any of these experienced politicians have to date. Yeah, look, I mean, his comments, I wouldn't say were, I mean, they were inhuman. I mean, they were they were just foolish. I mean, he's the guy, literally, you know, you leave your your um, your rake out on the front lawn and then you step on it and it hits you in the forehead and then you, you do it again and you just, just keep hitting yourself in the head. He just says stupid things, but he did not criticize the captain, the, the dead soldier. He did not criticize them, but his comment was just so stupid. It just invites trouble. And then I'm going to juxtapose it against the media, which honestly, they can't get enough of it. 
Look, and, you know, the media certainly uh, builds a larger audience for people who, uh, families in the situation who attack Republicans. We saw that with, you know, contrast the uh, coverage that Cindy Sheehan got, and the media only really turned on her when she started to attack Nancy Pelosi. Uh, but there's been a lot of comparisons between uh, the, the Cindy Sheehan incident and Patricia Smith, who spoke at the Republican uh, convention about her son, who she personally blamed Hillary Clinton for his death, and, uh, and, and the and if you look, George W. Bush, who was attacked relentlessly by Cindy Sheehan, uh, appropriately said, that's her right, you know, and, and I'm going to respect her, and that's America, and she has every right to uh, to hate him and to, to blame him for what happened, and that's his job as commander-in-chief. The, the, the buck stops with him. Uh, the cons were actually quite a bit different than some of the other families. Because they didn't go out there and suggest they oppose the war. There's no there's no reason to think they oppose the mission in Iraq and that their son was in a place he shouldn't have been. They obviously wish he had not uh, not been killed in in, uh, in service, but they don't oppose the war, and they didn't attack anyone. There's a lot of people who know, oh, crooked Hillary voted for the war, Donald Trump didn't. Well, he well, did first, attack but- Donald Trump, though. Sorry? He did he attack Donald, Donald Trump. Trump because his son, who was a hero, his son who died in service to his country, would not have been allowed to immigrate to the United States as a two-year-old had Donald Trump's full and complete shutdown of Muslim immigration into the United States been in effect. So that's where it comes from. I mean, this is a guy, you know, he didn't just have the Constitution in his pocket as a prop. This is a guy who, after his son died, he and his wife invited a, a group of cadets over for dinner, and he gave them all a copy of the Constitution. He, he walks and talks... Uh, uh, this this uh, mantra. This is not. Well, that's because uh, he's an immigration lawyer who does also make a lot of money off of getting people into the United States. I mean, there are some things you have to point out of Mr. Khan, and I am in no way attacking him, his wife, or uh, or their heroic son. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, they've made their point and should probably, uh, and I understand why they couldn't have left it at that speech, because I think the most offensive uh, attack from uh, from Donald Trump was on Mrs. Khan and her not speaking, and I think it's quite reasonable for anyone to think why it would be too emotional for someone, even with uh, years that have passed, to speak about their uh, dead son in front of the entire world. So so I think that was actually the most egregious attack on Mrs. Khan, who... Uh, so I understand why they had to do the second media tour and the op-ed and the uh, Washington Post and the open letter, which was really, really, really quite powerful. But I, I, I think it's time for the narrative to change. They've inflicted damage on Donald Trump. And if they continue to beleaguer the story here, I fear that uh, the media and the public will turn on them. And it will just seem like they're stretching this to attack Donald Trump. Donald Trump's done damage on himself already, and it's probably time that uh, we, we all move on. Yeah, it's interesting because you mentioned Pat Smith, and if you don't know who she is, her son was killed in Benghazi, and she spoke at the DNC, uh, uh, very emotional. Um, and, and I remember at the time, Michael, a bunch of liberal you know, pundits and strategists saying, oh, the disgusting marching out, a grieving woman to talk about her child. And I said, they all do it. No, 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 this is different. And yet at the DNC, they marched out mothers of dead black uh, youth, uh, Trayvon Martin. You know, they marched out the cons. I mean, these are all very, very, um, you know, this is all done for a reason. All politicians do that. But again, Pat Smith was attacked relentlessly for going out and, and blaming the death of her son 
on Hillary Clinton. And so I'm just wondering, where, like, where is the fairness in the coverage? There's zero balance. So so I, I'll agree with that. I mean, even when Pat Smith spoke my first thought and, and I saw the criticism, and I thought hers was a powerful speech, I do think there's a difference between going up and talking about defending the Constitution and allowing a free flow of immigrants, including uh, one who went and died for his country overseas in service, and Pat Smith, who went up and blamed Hillary Clinton for her son's death. And I understand why she holds those emotions uh, but there is a difference in how it how it's portrayed. But totally agree with you. My first thought when the pile up on Mrs. Smith happened, which was entirely inappropriate, was where were the same people in attacking Cindy Sheehan when she moved outside of George W. Bush's ranch in Crawford, Texas? I guess the difference is there was certainly a terrible attack on Mrs. Smith, and there was a terrible attack on the cons. But if you look at uh, I don't recall, and maybe there was previously, but following her address at the uh, Republican convention, any Hillary Clinton even acknowledging Mrs. Uh, Smith's speech. And the only thing that uh, Mr. Trump should have said on the cons is that you know he thanks them for the ultimate sacrifice they made, and he would like to talk to them about uh, uh, securing America. There was no need to uh, question her having to get permission to speak from her husband. There was no need to question their motives. Just thanking them was the only appropriate uh, matter and moving on. And if Donald Trump had the... Uh, the discipline of a normal politician, as we talked about last week. If he had the discipline of Rob Ford as a political operative, this story would be dead one day news cycle. Yeah, it's interesting, and I think you're right. You know, he's just he just never seems to get discipline. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, Hillary Clinton came out on the Sunday talk shows and said, "Well, she must have had you know she must be forgetful." And I'm thinking, okay. That's not exactly the the, the comment she should be making, but I, whatever, I don't know what Clinton's got, but she's got some very, very strong uh, uh, anti-stick. Nothing sticks to her. She, she's just, nothing gets held uh, against her. And the, the great irony is on that, and I don't think you're wrong, is Hillary Clinton, if she was, you know, interjecting into this call, would talk about how there's two sets of rules and, you know, much harsher and unfair rules for Hillary and then the rules for everybody else. And if you look at it, you know, uh, if John Kerry was called extremely careless with classified information, there's no way that uh, the president wouldn't uh, fire him from cabinet. Instead, it's Hillary Clinton. The president uh, flew to North Carolina to campaign with her. So there are two sets of rules. I just think that uh, Hillary them as being against her when they're very much in her favor. Yeah, but nonetheless, uh, this was the dominant uh, news cycle this weekend for three days. That's a very long news cycle for this because you're right, it did do damage to uh, to Trump. Uh, but again, for those on the GOP side, like John McCain and all the rest of it, and all these figures that are saying, oh, I'm not going to vote for him. This to me says more about them than it does Trump because they're looking out for their own rear ends. They don't care about the GOP or the establishment. They, they care about their trough and how they can fill it. You know, I, I think I actually disagree with that. I think if you look at uh, people like the Bushes, these are people who have a long time who who bled for the Republican Party, and John McCain's case bled for his country, uh, and and poured you know uh, blood and treasure into the cause of the Republican Party, which they view very much as the party of uh, Lincoln and Reagan. And Trump, who you know is an abomination to Reagan's party, and uh, you know supported Walter Mondale over Ronald Reagan for president, is just so distasteful. To them, that I think uh, they're not many of these people, like Jeff Flake, who I heard interviewed yesterday, the other senator from Arizona, made it clear he's not prepared to vote against 
uh, or to vote for Hillary Clinton, but he just campaigned himself to vote for Donald Trump, and I think that's a reasonable position. Look, I, I am not a sports fan. You know me pretty well. I'm mm-hmm. a bit too uh, nerdy or dweebish for, for sports, but I have one uh, affection in my life that's similar to sports fans do for their team, and that's for me, the Republican Party. And, uh, uh, you know, after this weekend, I just could not bring myself to vote for Donald Trump, and I think it's really unfortunate because um, there's... Uh, in my lifetime, we have never seen two general election candidates who are so deeply flawed. And it's really too bad that, you know, maybe Ted Cruz or mm-hmm. uh, and Bernie Sanders didn't say, you know, enough with us. Let's uh, both each run as, uh, and, uh, as independent uh, candidates. But I think they'd both be at that 15% threshold to get into the debate. And then Is that too late, by the way? Is it too late for that to happen? Sorry? Is it too late for that to happen? The ballot access in state to states uh, really, really swings. I mean, at, at the end of the day, since it's not a direct election for president, uh, you could have uh, write-ins to elect electors in some states who would be, you know, pledged, but they're not bound to vote for certain candidates when the Electoral College convenes at the state legislatures. So there's so many different rules. There's really 50 sets of rules, so it would vary state to state. But in Ohio, for example, it would be too late, so so you're really shut out from uh, the big uh, the big contest. But there's all sorts of scenarios, and I mean, for uh, Jonathan Carl, the uh, chief White House correspondent for ABC this week, did his projections on George Stephanopoulos' show on ABC, and he's predicting a deadlocked electorate. And once that happens the fun in games goes this will be this will make the 2000 election look like uh, uh, a boring uh, mini series instead of a great drama and uh, you would see the house of representatives being active the senate being active possibly court challenges throughout the country which was Scalia dead and uh, uh, Ruth uh, Ginsburg absolutely oh my god could you imagine herself. it is this, the, the election that will never end it will just go on and on <laughs> great it will be great fun well it will and it'll actually be pretty scary. But uh, the bottom line is, you know, you've worked on an outsider's campaign, you know, the power uh, of an uprising and a movement. We saw it with Bernie Sanders, but you saw it with uh, Rob Ford. So I still say he'll win. I, I, I don't know how, but the more the media piles on him, uh, he does get support. Oh, it's just the it's, weirdest uh, thing. It's, you know, um, uh, his comments were abhorrent. I'm disgusted by them. And I'm not prepared to say that I think it disqualifies him from holding the office. I do not think it will disqualify him from winning the election. And uh, again, the media pile up, the billionaires all come in and endorsing uh, Hillary. I don't think that hurts him with the folks who are sick and tired of the status quo. Yeah, like Warren Buffett, because he's the moral compass on on all things. I mean, come on. I mean, it's a, it, he, that guy has done more damage to Canada lobbying against our interests. I mean, he, he he's a disgrace as far as I'm concerned. Well, and it's just not going to resonate with folks in Pennsylvania who are yeah. out of work and yeah. sick and tired of being told what to do by the establishment and that they should pay more in taxes and they should do that. They should do that and at the end of the day they have no no jobs. So, yeah, uh, the Mark Cubans, the uh, Michael Bloomberg, the Warren Buffett, the Kochs, none of them, I think, are hurting Trump with any significant portion of his base. Yeah, the billionaire boys, uh, I mean, come on. Uh, who can relate to them? But nonetheless, uh, I think the emails coming out on her, I think they're going to be damaging. And I, I, I mean, we keep hearing stuff, the latest that she helped arm ISIS. I mean, Something's going to stick. Hey, look, it may be uh, her lies on the Sunday shows about uh, what uh, James Comey said about her would have stuck if not everybody was focused on Donald Trump attacking uh, the mother of a dead soldier. He just has to shut up. That's all he has to do. (laughs) He can't. Michael, thank you. Thank you. 
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. It's like a reality show. It's like a big, bad reality show with uh, a very serious outcome. Uh, one, you know, one of the biggest criticisms uh, that Donald Trump gets is his lack of foreign policy knowledge. And this weekend, during the Sunday talk shows, he was asked about Russia. And Trump said Putin would make no move into Ukraine. He calls it the Ukraine. I had to correct him and say we don't call it that. But anyway, he calls it the Ukraine, which is wrong. Um, But he said, hey, uh, Putin will never make a move into that. Well, we already know that Russia has already annexed Crimea. So it got folks once again talking about Trump's judgment and his preparedness. But sometimes experience doesn't help. Hillary Clinton's record is nothing to brag about. And I and I have this debate with people all the time because they can't figure out. I mean, yes, Trump is bombastic and, and crazy and says outlandish things. But on the flip side, the woman with all this experience in politics, the first lady, the former first lady and the, the you know, former secretary of state, I mean, she's made some huge mistakes. That's why I find her the more offensive candidate, because she's being sold as the one that we're supposed to trust. And under her watch... You know, she did the Russia reset button, which, of course, didn't reset. In fact, probably led to to the, you know, the crawl into Crimea, Libya, Benghazi. She's also blamed along President Obama of creating ISIS. New reports coming out from WikiLeaks that she helped arm ISIS, you know, underestimating that threat. But here's what uh, President Obama said today about uh, Mr. Trump. I think the Republican nominee is unfit. Uh, to serve as president. Uh, I said so last week, and uh, he keeps on proving it. Okay. Uh, Maybe not wrong, but there was a time when this community leader was not said to be right for for the top job. And you'll recall it was Mr. Obama who compared ISIS to a JV team. So he didn't exactly get that call right and has made some very, very big mistakes. Let's bring James Campbell into this uh, conversation. He's a professor of political science out of Buffalo. And of course, he's got this book uh, called Polarize, Making Sense of the Divided America, which comes out this fall. Thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be with you. So when it comes down to the nuts and bolts uh, of selling these two candidates, which I've got to be honest, and I'm not sure where you stand on it, uh, I think you hold your nose on both of them, say a lot of people, but um, they can both be criticized for their performance, correct? Well, um, I agree. Yes. Um, There's somewhat of a difference there between the performance of Hillary Clinton as both as a candidate and um, in holding uh, positions of public trust, whereas uh, Donald Trump has not had experience um, in, uh, in, in doing that. So, this, this James, was a, big, this was a big criticism of Mr. Obama before he secured uh, the presidency, that he had no foreign policy experience, and yet he somehow put a team around him uh, and was able to do it, uh, many saying it was done all wrong. Uh, so I'm not sure he can use that same criticism against Trump because the, the, the Obama presidency has made some very, very big uh, mistakes when it comes to foreign policy. I agree. And, you know, I think what Americans, are, or at least many Americans, are looking for is uh, kind of a fresh start. Uh, an outsider, they're, uh, close to 70% of Americans think uh, the country's been moving uh, on, in, on the wrong track. And uh, so this is an election really uh, that's geared toward uh, bringing in an outsider. 
And Trump has that as an advantage, I think, over over Clinton. Assuming he can just stop, you know, right. saying stupid he things. Stop imploding. I mean, that's he's sometimes he's his worst enemy. He really is. I mean, we've had three days now where he has been the story, and you don't always want to be the story. I mean, there have been some pretty big gaffes this weekend on the Sunday talk shows uh, with Hillary Clinton, and and she she didn't get. Uh, any bad media coverage over them right. because Mr. Trump couldn't keep his mouth shut. Right, he's he's been very undisciplined as a uh, as a candidate, and we saw this in the primaries uh, the you know, the day that he was about to clinch the Republican nomination. He came out with that wild story about uh, Ted Cruz's father being involved in some way in the Kennedy assassination. And the focus here should have been after the, the Democratic Convention, uh, which painted a very rosy picture of, of a country that doesn't seem to, to fit with what the public is actually uh, thinking and saying. The focus should have been on, uh, on Clinton as, uh, as the establishment candidate, the candidate who's been in power in one way or another since the 1990s. And if she were going to do something to rectify the situation, she should, she sure had plenty of time to do that at, by this point. And so she should have been the focus. For some reason, Trump gets easily diverted to minor skirmishes and blows them up that, uh, where he really shouldn't be even dealing with them. Yeah, I mean, if he had just ignored the whole con, uh, uh, you know, speech and just said, you know, our thoughts with the family, it, it, we wouldn't be talking about it. But for whatever reason, he's, he does say the most outlandish things. He just can't seem to help it. Or do you get the sense that he does this on purpose? Oh, I think he can't help it. I think it's like a bull with, uh, you know, you, put, you wave a red flag in front of him and, and he just goes charging. So he, he hasn't had uh, the discipline to pick and choose the important battles and to keep his eye on the ball and the eye on the ball for him and for Republicans should be keeping um, the uh, White House away from uh, uh, keeping Hillary Clinton away from the White House. And, um, and he just loses track of that. So at what point will he no longer get away with it? I mean, I, I think people tend to get a little bit more nervous. I know I know a lot of people who far more hate Hillary Clinton, and so they're going to hold their nose and vote for Trump. And they don't like Trump either, but they just hate her that much more. Will that support, though, disappear if he keeps putting stuff out there? Well, it, it may. I, I think he's already hurt himself quite a bit. I mean, there's still plenty of time to recover uh, because the uh, conventions were held earlier this year uh, in this cycle. Uh, but he he um, has a pattern established now that is going to be difficult uh, to uh, get people to think about him in different in a different way. Somebody, and I don't know whether this is possible. Somebody needs to sit him down and say, you know, if you want to be the winner here, there are certain you have to be much more disciplined. You can't just pick a fight with everybody. Do you not think that he has people in that war room saying that to him? I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, you know, you may or may not have followed Rob Ford when he became the mayor of Toronto, and it was a bona fide circus. But he, he did have more discipline, I mean, and, and that was his campaign team. Do you not think that's going on behind the scenes with Mr. Trump? Well, I don't know. Uh, if, it's, if it's going on, it's not... It's, it's not taking, you know, he's not uh, accepting the advice if, it, if it's being given to him. I know he's had a reputation of 
of um, of not getting um, the best advice. You know that that um, he's uh, not well thought of by the Republican establishment, and that includes a lot of the kind of the best uh, advisors out there. And and I think he probably has a tendency of of surrounding himself with uh, yes men. Um, that said, th- these are no brainers. I mean, you, you don't pick a fight. With a with a with a second order um, speaker at uh, at the convention, you go after the uh, you, you go after your opponent. I mean, it's almost like the Democrats dropped Hillary Clinton as their opponent and put Khan in in his place in her place. I mean, it's it's it, his behavior has just been uh, uh, hard to to, to fathom. Yeah. Which brings me, I think you bring up an interesting point. If I'm the uh, Clinton team, I'm just dropping these uh, red herrings all over the place because he, he doesn't have the discipline uh, to not go after them, which means they never have to go on the defense for Hillary Clinton. Exactly, exactly. I mean, he, he has to understand that this this is a winnable election, I think, still for Republicans, uh, even with Donald Trump as their uh, candidate. As you said, uh, He's running against a, an opponent who's well known, and she has her supporters, but she also has um, unfavorables uh, that rival uh, Trumps, and uh, and they're more grounded in experience, a longer um, history, and so uh, that that's a great target. I mean, just focus on that. I mean, you know, uh, James Carville back in the, the first, uh, you know, Clinton. It, it, uh, race said, you know, it's uh, you know, it's the economy stupid, and and this should be it's Hillary stupid. You know, keep focused on her. No, don't raise any issue that doesn't go directly to her record and uh, her experience. I mean, they did say that this election cycle would be interesting. I, I I don't know how much more interesting it can get, but every day surprises me. Oh, and I, we've got to. A ways to go, and I, I can't wait for the debates. The debates are going to be uh, um, like uh, some uh, major heavyweight fight of uh, you know, Liston versus Ali or something of that sort. Uh, but so we, we have a, a, a bruising can- a few months to go here. Yeah, and it's interesting because, I mean, obviously, with the 24-7 news cycle, you know, someone like Ronald Reagan, uh, he never had to deal with this this constant feeding of the media, uh, always looking for a headline. And not, I don't think any other candidate, uh, maybe Obama, certainly social media was a big tool for him. But, uh, you know, this can get out of control very, very quickly because the media is not looking to give any breaks, clearly, to Mr. Trump. Um, and and there are many on side with her. Right. Oh, I think so, and I, I think it's it's up to uh, his team to uh, try to bring him, him into control and try to to uh, control the uh, the agenda for the campaign. I mean, they could have a countdown of you know every every day another reason not to vote for Hillary Clinton, um, and just keep keep the keep that the focus of the uh, of of the campaign. Something to to. You know, almost put blinders on on Trump to to get him to to focus. As you well know, though, Professor, a, a day in politics is, I mean, anything can happen. So we're still quite a ways out from from that election night. So you know, he still has time uh, to kind of get himself in check and and act leaderly. Yes, and I, I think this election too, um, he may have actually more time 
than under normal circumstances because both candidates are so disliked. I think there are going to be a lot of late deciders. Uh, you know, people you know people put off the unpleasant, and uh, as you mentioned, there are a lot of people are going to be holding their nose walking into the to the voting booth. Uh, so in November, so I think that that we may have a little bit more volatility in um, in this election, despite the polarization. Polarization in in American politics should have should reduce volatility. And both people are kind of on, or both sides are are entrenched. But uh, when you have two candidates of of this sort, with uh, where people have diametrically opposite and strong views. Uh, of them, um, then I think that you, you may get some uh, some more movement right at the end. Yeah, sure will be interesting. I know a lot of people uh, who are going to hold their nose and vote for him, but I, I'm not sure come election day that, that they'll. I have a fear, a feeling they might just stay home. Well, that's I think that's going to be the choice for a lot of people. It's uh, whether their candidate, uh, the candidate of their preferred party, is um, is is good enough. Um, where it's not bad enough to uh, to keep them uh, keep them from voting, um, you know. I I've, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, uh, "My candidate is an idiot. Your candidate is worse." <laughs> so so uh, you know, I think you're going to have a lot of people who are who are uh, holding off and just saying, "Well, you know, how you know is this really?" Is this person good enough to vote for? Am I or I am I going to feel embarrassed? Uh, that I voted for the person uh, after after the uh, elections. Yeah, it sure is interesting times, but we'll keep an eye on it. Thanks so much for your input. Thank you. That's okay. Professor James Campbell joining us out of Buffalo, uh, and, and he's got the book coming out, Polarized, and I think what a great timing for a book, Making Sense of a Divided America. comes out in the fall, which is perfect timing for the election. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We're just days away from the kickoff to the Rio Games. I'm normally very excited about the the games. I mean, I watch a lot. I love the equestrian events because Canada's got an amazing, amazing equestrian uh, team. But I love things like the track and field. I mean, who doesn't? But, you know, I don't know. This this games does not seem that exciting. It seems like it's it's full of problems. Uh, but the athletes are arriving. They're starting to gear up and get acclimated. Uh, it should be the biggest moments of their life. But there are just so many, you know, unknowns surrounding this particular event. And, and given the economic troubles, organizers say that usual fanfare of the games it might be a little bit more muted. So like opening night will not be the glitz and glamour that we saw, let's say, with Beijing, uh, not even Vancouver. Or Russia certainly won't be as glitzy as Russia because, remember, they spent every penny they had. Who cares if the people go hungry? Sochi was great because they had great fireworks, but it won't be like that for Rio. And now athletes, I mean, if you're a water athlete in Rio, good Lord. If you're swimming in that water, ew. So they're all being warned, you know, don't open your mouths because of the pollution, all sorts of viruses. That's pretty serious. So you put that, and then there's all these security situations. ISIS terror groups are looking at this like it could be a great target. So not just the athletes, but if you're heading to Rio, you are being warned. Let's join Cam Galinda, who is a Hamiltonian volunteering in Rio. So he's been there for a couple of weeks because his job is driving the Iranian team around. Hi, how are you? 
Good, how are you? It's good to be on the show. It's great to have you. I want your perspective from the ground. First of all, how fun is your job? It's, uh, it's very entertaining. Uh, but before we get into the interview, I did want to make one uh, quick note. Although I am affiliated with Rio 2016, I'm volunteering for the organization, and no way am I speaking on behalf of the organization. These are simply my observations and my experiences that we're talking about. But uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, my my uh, position with Rio 2016 is National Olympic Committee Assistant. Uh, so I've been assigned to one of the 207 delegations, in this case the Iranian delegation, to sort of provide operational support throughout the games, and uh, it has been uh, a lot of fun, actually, so far. Yeah, look, Rio is is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place, but it it definitely has its issues. It's it's under a lot of economic uh, turmoil right now. Um, But but what's the atmosphere like now now that I guess the athletes are starting to arrive? Yeah, the athletes are starting to arrive. The village opened uh, about a week ago. Uh, The period between then and the opening ceremony is always a bit chaotic when the athletes start arriving. In this case, the Athletes Village is, I believe, uh, it's 30 buildings, 18 stories each, and, and it's meant to house the over 10,000 athletes that are supposed to be participating in this year's Olympics. So uh, getting those buildings ready uh, was a challenge, I, I guess, for the organizing committee. Um, I mean, they're built, uh, the rooms are ready, uh, but there are certain issues in, in, in some of the buildings that, that had to be resolved. I feel like, um, like uh, Harrison Ford in, in the Star Wars trailer where he says it's true. It's all true, everything you've been hearing in the media in regards to some of the, the buildings not being ready for the athletes and then that sort of thing. But uh, it looks like they're, they're wrapping everything up, putting on the finishing touches. Uh, the excitement is, is growing in the city. Uh, there's talks about the locals not being overly excited for, for the Olympics, but generally with the tourists and everyone that's coming down, it's, it's, it's getting a, a lot more exciting. What is the um, the biggest concern at this point? I mean, you know, every game has its problems. Every game kind of goes down to the wire where they're trying to put things together, trying to get things cleaned up. You know, Sochi, everyone forgets that they, they had like the mass culling of street dogs. That outraged people. But come game times, everyone you're, you're was pretty excited. Question correctly. I, th- I think for, for the Rio Olympics, we're, we're going to have to wait and see. I mean, there's, there's all these concerns that have been raised uh, leading up to the Olympics, but until we, we get closer to the closing ceremony, I don't, I don't think we'll have a, uh, we'll know for sure. From, from the standpoint uh, that I'm at here, it seems that the uh, pollution in some of the uh, Olympic venues, such as the rolling venue and the sailing venue, is, is a, a bigger concern. Uh, when, the, um, when the city won the Olympic bid back in 2009, uh, a major portion of the Olympic legacy was the idea of this being the most environmentally friendly Olympics in, in history, uh, with the idea that the city was going to clean up a lot of the waterways and uh, stop a lot of pollution from going into the waters. Uh, but problems after another have resulted in the city not doing um, the original plan. Uh, but either way, the Olympics are, are going to uh, move forward, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Have you seen, I mean, can you see the pollution? Can you see, I mean, if you're a tourist there, are you going to see some problems that they just can't get rid of? I mean, the city, is, it's, it's, it's Brazil, it's Rio de Janeiro, it's, uh, it's one of the more populated cities in South America, and obviously there's a lot of uh, poverty, not the kind of poverty that we see in Canada, but a lot of extreme poverty. I'm actually uh, in what can be considered the downtown version of Rio de Janeiro, uh, which is where I am right now, which is why there's a lot of background noise, which I want to apologize for. But it's, uh, it's, it's incredible to see how many homeless people uh, there are here on the streets. Uh, the city originally proposed that they, they, that they would clean up uh, the homeless problem, but they're not really fixing the solution from what I can see. 
uh, it looks a lot of the, the, the poverty has been moved to other neighborhoods uh, away from the public eye, but there still is a lot of poverty on the streets, which is really unfortunate. Uh, but hopefully the economic uh, benefits of having and uh, hosting an Olympic Games will, uh, in the long term, be uh, more helpful to the city. Never apologize for sound of fun and excitement. We like that kind of thing, and it means that the city is bustling. So, in, you know, I know that the infrastructure was a big part and that uh, Rio, you know, has gotten some really big investments as far as fixing its infrastructure, its transportation, things like that. So there will be good things that come out of the games. But no question, security is an issue. What are they telling you as a volunteer? Um, and, and are you hearing anything from, are, is your team with you now? Are you with them? No, today's okay. my day off. So the team is, is back at the village, which is where my headquarters is. Uh, so because it's my day off, I decided to go visit downtown Rio de Janeiro and sort of see a lot of the touristic uh, uh, sightseeing opportunities, um, which is which is giving me a different perspective on things. Uh, security hasn't been a big topic of conversation. I mean, generally, I think the athletes feel relatively safe, and uh, so do I at this point. Before I headed down, you know, you, you heard all these things in the news about you have to stay safe, make sure you, you stay away from dark alleys and that sort of thing. But since I've arrived, my, uh, I, I suppose my, uh, my confidence in the security is, is, uh, is, is very high. Um, since I arrived, I think about two weeks ago, it would appear from my perspective that security has almost quadrupled uh, in the time leading up to the Games. And what that looks like is, you know, the, the National Guard has taken uh, control of, of security at all the Olympic venues. So you have all these military personnel with big guns. I'm not sure all of them know how to use them, uh, but you see them at <laughs> local intersections here and there. It's almost like every two blocks there's, there's a, uh, some kind of police vehicle or military vehicle parked there with, with, uh, with folks, you know, just watching out for, for security reasons. So the police and uh, military presence is very high in the city. Uh, but uh, it, it is, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I feel relatively safe, and I think a lot of the athletes feel that way as well. And uh, and being that you're, you know, with the athletes, what are the athletes telling you? What are their concerns? Do they have any concerns? This should be the biggest moment of their lives, but I guess, you know, it's a bit maybe overshadowed by, you know, the pollution or Zika virus. What are they saying to you? You know, once you get here, it's almost as if a lot of those worries seem to disappear because you're suddenly here in the moment. I think one of the bigger concerns that the athletes have raised is, the traffic conditions in the city and, and how hard it can be to get from one point of the city to another. And in their mind, they want to make sure that when it comes to competition, they are able to get to their venue on time to compete. Uh, I've been checking some of the local venues here and there with some of the athletes and, and the delegation because they go out and train uh, and for, for their big day. And uh, we're, we're getting a sample of what the traffic is like. Uh, just like the Pan Am Games, the, the city of Rio de Janeiro has... Uh, designated certain uh, vehicle occupancy lanes just for uh, Rio 2016 official vehicles, similar to the Pan Am Games, except on a much larger scale. It seems like uh, almost every single major artery here in the city has that uh, vehicle occupancy lane, which, from what I can see when I when I ride that lane in the Olympic vehicles, it seems to be working. Uh, so I don't know how they've been able to sort of figure that out with the locals. Uh, my guess is that you got a ticket if you ride the, uh, the vehicle lane, but they, uh, everyone seems to be positively uh, receptive of, of the Olympics here in, in Rio. Well, we will definitely check in with you because, uh, you know, it's an exciting time and, and obviously you're getting experience uh, that none of us can uh, being back here, but we'll definitely check in with you. Thanks so much, Cam, for joining us and stay definitely, safe. Definitely. I'm, I'm very active on social media. If you want to see some of the things that I've had the opportunity of taking a look at, we'll definitely have to check in once the games begin. 
Yeah, no, we will absolutely. And uh, have a wonderful time. Have a wonderful experience. Thank you too. That's uh, Cam Galindo. He's a, a volunteer from Hamilton who did some work with Pan Am, did a volunteering with Pan Am, and that's kind of how he furthered on into his next adventure uh, with the games. It'll be fascinating to hear what his experience is, uh, given all the media reports, and, and one of those big reports is on the security. And ob- obviously you can see when you're on the ground uh, that that the they've got it in check, apparently. Lots of guns, lots of people. Um but what are they being warned about? Because ISIS, terror, this, the, the Olympics, no matter where it is, is always a huge, huge target. Let's bring in David Hyde. He is a security expert on all things like this. Hey, David. How are you, Alex? Good. What, what is it that you're hearing as far as security? Is it something about Rio that makes it different than, let's say, China, Russia? I mean, they have all been targets as well of attacks. But is Rio in a different category? Well, it really is, and one of the reasons is because there really hasn't been all that much linked to Brazil um, and Rio in terms of an ongoing kind of jihadist or extremist terrorism threat, which on the one hand is, is, is good news. On the other hand, it means their authorities are not used to dealing with that threat vector. They're not used to the intelligence gathering process, the kind of signals and signs that may portend planning or, or, or attack preparations, which is where the U.S. and the allies come in. They've been helping the authorities in Brazil to have a, a you know, broader radar screen and to really watch for threats that are coming down. So that's one key difference. And of course, the other one is just the significant levels of crime, organized crime, street crime that is prevalent in Rio and other parts of Brazil that I think is probably unprecedented in recent games to have them held in an area in immediate proximity to such high-crime areas in some of the favelas in and around these venues. Is there a concern? Is there just as much crime locally as there is, or is there more of a concern of someone infiltrating and getting into the country and carrying something off? Well, I mean, really, it's both. I mean, you've got to look at both streams when you're protecting an Olympics. On the terrorism side, Brazil shares borders with 10 countries. Some of these countries have very porous borders with Brazil, um, you know, there's evidence to show that there's been a stream of uh, explosives and ammunition and uh, weaponry and drugs, frankly, moving across that border really at will. So that's one of the challenges that the, um, the authorities are up against. And then on the local crime side, they had actually done quite a good job up to about six months to nine months ago of tamping down some of the organized crime. But it's ballooned. And in the last uh, four to six months, the, it's, at, it's at higher levels than ever. And we know that the unemployment rate is very high. There's economic challenges in the country, people not getting paid as far as the government and some of the police people are concerned. So there's a lot of ingredients here to give some disquiet to people that plan these kind of events with respect to, you know, just the the veracity of the planning and the ability to prevent um, things happening, whether it be crime or terrorism. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think it's said to have been, it's going to be a more muted games. It's not going to be as flashy as we've seen in the past. But, uh, you know, are they going out of their way to make sure about security? I mean, I know that uh, Americans have been brought in to help with the security, but are they they up to speed for Friday? Well, there's no doubt that there's an unprecedented level of focus on security at these games. There's 85,000 military and police, which has probably dwarfed the London games. I think that's almost double the games in London. Um, the U.S. are in lockstep with the Brazilian authorities and other countries, too. 
the French have, have, have provided SWAT teams and things for training to prepare for the types of attacks that you know, we hope don't take place but, but could theoretically take place. Um, my concern more is on the intelligence gathering side. You know, I think that um, the Rio uh, police and military, for example, that are at these games in the main venues, they're used to dealing with organized crime. They have much heavier weaponry um, and anti, anti-crime, anti-terrorism type um, tools than U.S. authorities do, frankly. They're used to dealing with very well-armed um, criminal gangs, and there are shootouts in the streets there. It, it's not an unusual thing. Um, so I think that they're good from the, from the response perspective. It's the preparedness that concerns me. And uh, frankly, on the radar screen of many folks that, that do what I do and look at these threats and speak about it, is the lone wolf terror threat. The idea that an individual could come into the country from Uruguay, from one of the other neighboring countries, or just as a tourist and could have that mindset where they want to bring something to bear, whether it be uh, we- um, you know, weapons, whether it be explosives, whether it be trying to infiltrate these games in some way to make a big spectacle, that's the main concern right now. Yeah, because interestingly, ISIS, I think it was about a year ago, uh, you know, named Rio as a target, and they would love nothing more than to take the spotlight away from the games itself. But, you know, Rio has other issues in the sense that they can get targeted kidnappings. So, you know, athletes going out or tourists, uh, nothing like getting an American tourist and taking them uh, somewhere in an abduction. That also is a, is a big factor? It sure is, you know, and um, obviously when you look at the athletes and the entourages of the di- different teams, they tend to be moving in fairly secure areas. They're in the athletes' village, which is very well secured. It might not be that well built, but it's certainly well secured. Um, you're moving to the main venues and the practice venues. Again, a lot of security, specialized traffic lanes to the extent that they can do that locally, and a lot of security and military presence. The concern that I've got is for the families of the athletes, for the people that can't stay in these secure areas, that are staying in the hotels and the resort, other things. Ordinarily, the risk wouldn't be quite as high, but there's an unprecedented level of street crime in country right now, particularly around the Rio area. And there are people that are looking for victims to prey on. And tourists and families of the athletes who aren't moving in these protected bubbles can be very vulnerable. And they really need to take stock of local advice. And many uh, of the uh, teams, frankly, are hiring their own private security. um, Spain is an example. U.S. is, is, is taking along some private security people to add another layer of security. And that's quite unusual in modern day games. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating uh, to see. I think more people are actually watching Rio, David, uh, to see if everything goes okay than than to see the sporting event itself, which is a little bit sad. But that's the reality we face today, uh, living with terror. No, it it, it sure is. And I mean, obviously, we all all hope that nothing's going to happen. We all don't want to see any type of event to take away from the spectacle of the games. The games speak, of course, so much to our democracy and and competition and fair play, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, never before, in my view, in recent times, has there been a game that's had so many concerns stacked up in terms of security, in terms of the challenges they've had addressing the threats, some of the economic and political challenges they've had, the public health issues, of course, with Zika virus, and now just the fact that they, they're really facing this uncertainty in their military and police ranks with getting paid, with their level of dedication, all of these things add up to 
uh, you know, a concern. And, and the last one would be that the private security company that they had wanted to hire to screen people in the venues didn't come through. And the last minute, they uh, they fired them. So that's that's the issue. Wow, that that's uh, that's incredible. But that's the other thing you point out. Uh, it's how reliable will the security be? I mean, uh, are they expecting protests from the locals who might feel that, uh, you know, they'd rather have bread than a circus? Well, that would not surprise me. I mean, we have seen some protests already. Back when the, the governments, the local governments stopped paying or reduced the pay to the police and firefighters because they ran out of money, frankly. And um, you may have heard, your listeners may have heard, that the police were on, were on a protest line at the airport welcoming the early entourages to the games with signs saying, welcome to hell. <laughs> because, you know, uh, and that's almost a bit of a, you know, um, a foreboding, if you will, to say, look, you know, things aren't very, going very well here. Now, the, the, there's been now emergency funds have come in to provide funding to the police and military. So let's hope that that continues. But it does show you just the level of disquiet in and amongst some elements of the Brazilian population. They have had, um, you know, a lot of political crisis issues recently, um, claims of corruption and this and that. So when you look at all of that, I think there is potential for there to be issue-motivated protests and threats in and around, you know, from within, if you will. And this is also on the radar screen of the authorities who are frankly managing an array of threats in a fairly unprecedented um, environment for the games. Yeah, it's fascinating in a country that's falling apart. David, thank you so much. Thank you now. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.